Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Today's guest is Artie Fuqua. Artie is a survivor, more than you may know, maybe, certainly more than he lets on. From the sometimes mean streets of Jersey City where he grew up, through the black circuit of comedy clubs up to the heights of the comedy cellar. From his 19-year-old son dying in an accident playing basketball in 2012, to Artie himself almost dying two years later, in the Jersey Turnpike crash in June 2014 that killed comedian Jimmy Mack and put both Artie and Tracy Morgan in comas. For the year before that, Artie had traveled around the world as Tracy Morgan's opening act, hyping his crowds as energetically as he does most nights at the Comedy Cellar. A couple days after the accident, Dave Chappelle got up at the cellar and said this about Artie, quote, I think we're all eagerly anticipating the ovation he gets when he walks back up on the stage, and he's healthy and he's well, and he does one more of them shitty sets he does. I believe that he's going to be all right, but I don't know. Well, now we know it took 16 months of intensive and lonely rehab before we could see Artie on stage and applaud him once more. In 2016, you'll see Artie with Big J Okerson fronting a new stand-up showcase for CISO called What's Your Effing Deal? It's all about crowd work. In between working the crowds at the Comedy Cellar and the Olive Tree Cafe, I managed to grab and hold Artie's attention just long enough to find out how he not only survives, but still thrives in the comedy game. So let's get to it. Son. Let me explain something, son. Is it no gauge, son? Is it no... <laughs> Artie Fuqua. A black man doing a podcast. We hold the mic like this. Yeah, man, I'm doing a podcast, dude. When I do podcasts and shit, I don't fuck around, dude. It's how I do podcasts, son. <laughs> Gully and shit, son. Artie, thank you for sitting down with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I'll hold the microphone then. So I want to thank everybody for coming out to my birthday celebration. This is, I feel like crying. I feel like crying. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you just did what you do best, which is uh, be the host with the most at the Comedy Cellar. Thank you. I appreciate it. How that. is the crowd tonight? Well, the crowds are always good. It all depends on, as an entertainer, if you give 110%, the crowd is going to be good. Mm -hmm. You have to understand that for every circumstance and for every audience, the energy is going to be different. But if you are the same, no matter the performance, then the audience either is on your side from the first second you say hello, or you build them into it. And that is the job of an entertainer, to work the audience. Everything is different. Life is an improv. No matter what we do, we improv. Right. You could be in Canada, and you can say, you know what, man, I've never been here before. This audience could be different. But the second you step on the stage, they are yelling and screaming and clapping and laughing hard and into everything you say. They get all your references. Yeah. Well, you could be in New York City. And you can say, I'm about to kill. These are my people. You could bomb your ass off because they're just not into you. It's, but that's just entertainment. You have to find a way to make every audience your ally. Right. Now, I know my audience, uh, before I ask you anything else, wants to know, how are you feeling these days? How do you feel physically, emotionally? How do you feel? My answer to that question is, with my hands. I feel with my hands. <laughs> no, nothing? Okay. <laughs> I feel awesome. I feel great. That's. I feel like I have a... New leash on life. Is it lease on life or leash? How do you say that? <laughs> it depends on what you want to do with life. You know, the, the best thing, the, oh, lease, thanks, Steve. 
The worst thing is when you're trying to sound smart and you're not smart, yeah. and you're saying the wrong things, that's me. I, try to, I don't try to sound smart. It just sounds good to me, and I go with that. Well, you know, Artie, it's, uh, it's a new year, and we just came through what for you is, is like an even busier time than most people for the holidays, because you had your birthday, then Christmas, then your daughter's birthday and New Year's. My daughter's 21st birthday. Yeah. How, how, how much more did you celebrate this year than last year? Uh, what, were the, what, were, what was this period for you like last year? Um, well, last year it was easier because I, I didn't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> no one wanted anything. No one expected anything from me. Right, but you weren't even like leaving the house or? It was perfect. Yeah. I ain't had to get nobody's shit. <laughs> you ain't give me nothing for Christmas? It's okay because you couldn't go out anyway. <laughs> but now I'm free. Yeah. I got some extra cash and they know that I'm mobile. Hey, I, we, look, we know you got one leg, but can you limp over to JCPenney's and get me a nice gift? Right. <laughs> so. Well, okay, so you brought up, you have one leg. What's, what's going on with your other leg? My, my uh, I don't have these, the strength and agility that I had. It's basically titanium. My femur bone is titanium. So the, mus the muscles have to be rebuilt. Okay. And how did it feel, how does it feel being on stage again? That's the surprising thing. It, it feels like I never left. I thought it would take me some time before I could come back, but right. it hasn't been like that at all. Well, I mean, just seeing you, uh, I've, I've been seeing you now back for about six months or so, maybe? And in the first few months, you weren't on stage at all. You were just... Actually, I, I came back on stage October 16th. Yeah. So it's been remarkable to see how much you are truly back. So I heard. <laughs> <laughs> although, although you know, I've known you for quite some time now, mm -hmm. and you're back, but you're you feel different to me now than you did before. Do you feel different? You felt me before. That's creepy. <laughs> I know you was feeling me before. This is weird. <laughs> yeah, man. I used to feel you before, man. You okay. felt you felt soft. <laughs> okay, I would you felt smooth. <laughs> I would say, I would say our personal business relationship before uh, hang, hanging out with you, uh, you, you were the party guy, uh, you, were all, you were talking about like, you, before you always had like DJ nights you were promoting, you are the party guy, but you were also kind of like the cock blocker. Yes. And now, now you seem more like the ultimate wingman. Well, see, I guess, I had, to, I guess I had to tune it in. Yeah. I guess me trying to help would end up in me cock blocking and saying things. Because I, I tell jokes the whole time. So when you come up and a guy's talking to a girl, right. and you're just cracking on the guy like you would do when you're with your friends is a cock block. Yeah. But I hadn't picked that up at that point. I wasn't trying to be harmful. I wasn't trying to deter anyone from making a love connection with anybody. That was just what I did naturally. Right. So me trying to wingman someone, I would say, oh, you should get with my dude right here. With his lazy eye. Like I would say <laughs> stupid jokes. <laughs> Which the girl would find funny. Mm -hmm. And then next thing I know, I have the girl wanting to hang out with me because they thought I was funny. Right. Not because they thought I was cute and they wanted to sleep with me, just because they wanted to hear jokes. Now, I just keep my mouth shut. But, but do, you, do, you, uh, do you have a sense of your, your own self that you're more selfless or your personality is different now? 
than it was a year or three years ago? I don't know. That's someone else's perception. I've always felt the same. Yeah. I've always felt the same. Have you always have you always felt like you needed to be an entertainer? Well, what else am I going to do? I don't know. I don't know what you were like when you were a kid. I'm much too old to work at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> there's not, older there's older people at Dunkin' Donuts. I'm not Indian enough to work at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> like I I I've, I've done comedy for 25 years. I can't go to Starbucks now. Okay, so you started when you were 20. 19 actually. 19. What did you want to do before that? Did you have, did you have dreams that, that were not comedy-based? No. Bef when you were a kid? No. I started doing it so young, and then it turns out that I actually like doing it, and it's all I focused on. And you're from Jersey City? Jersey City, New Jersey. So when you were growing up, how were you first exposed to comedy? Um, I would say... Growing up in bad neighborhoods, if you don't want to join gangs or get into a lot of fights, you find a way to be friends with everybody. Right. And it turns out, cracking jokes. Everybody liked to crack jokes. When I was coming up, I was when Eddie Murphy Raw was getting big. Uh, Richard Pryor was big. Right. Um, that's what everybody listened to, Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor. And that's where my sense of humor came from. At what point did you realize that you could make a career out of that? Oh, I can? I didn't even know that. <laughs> I had no idea I could make a career out of this. Thank you, you for pointing that out. Maybe I'll, well, maybe you, I'll audition. <laughs> you've been, you, you yourself said you've been doing this for 25 years. I've that's, been doing this. I didn't say I was being a real comedian for 25 <laughs> years. Maybe I'll try to get on Last Comic Standing now. <laughs> how, now how, it's my time to shine. So how would you describe yourself then? Or how did you describe yourself? I never did. Oh, okay. Well, let me ask you this then. When you were 18, 19 in Jersey City uh, making people laugh in the bad neighborhood, how did you... What was I was just trying not to get beat up. Right. So what did you, how did you turn that into going to a comedy club for the first time? Well, what, what compelled you to go? How did well, you do that? I saw uh, the Wayans brothers, Sean Wayans, opening for Marlon, I mean for uh, Damon. Uh -huh. And Where was, was that? Like, at the Apollo. Okay. And I was like, hey, he's dressed nice. He's about my age. Mm -hmm. He's telling jokes. I want to do that too. And I noticed the people laughing. Okay, let's be honest. I noticed the girls laughing. And I said, I want to get the girls too. So I began telling jokes and dressing nice. Where because was girls thought I was cute <laughs> if I was funny. <laughs> so where was the first place you told jokes? The Uptown Comedy Club in Harlem. Was that uh, an open mic or a book show? How did that work? Well, on the black circuit, there are no open mics. They're just comedy clubs that if you audition and get in, you do the New Jack segment. Okay. And they bring you back as a New Jack, and the audience votes you back, and then you do New Jack spots. New Jack means you're new. Right. How many times did you have to audition more than once for that? Or is um, it pretty... Actually... How tough is the audition process? It was easy. Okay. Because this is what I did naturally. Some people it was tough. Right. Some, some people they got booed off all over and over all the time. Me, I didn't have that problem. <laughs> so you auditioned, and what was your first New Jacks show like? It was me and Wilson Vince. And uh, shit, I mean, I, you have to do three to five minutes. Right. 
now I don't even say my name until after three to five minutes. <laughs> but back then, three to five minutes is like ten hours. Yeah. What What do you remember of your about that first, that first show? Being too afraid to say to even look at the audience, I stared at the floor the entire time. <laughs> so how long did it take you after that to do it a second time? The following week. Okay. So it didn't deter you that. No. No, they kept the audience kept voting me back, voting me back, voting me back. So I kept performing. At what point did you uh, do you remember the first the first joke or bit that you had that you're absolutely like, not. <laughs> what about the what about the first one that you had that was like oh this is this is good. I never had jokes. I would just go on stage and crack on the audience. Okay. I would just go on stage and be like look at this nigga here, and then that would that would be it. Uh, make jokes about the, the outfit. What they had on, what they were wearing, that was me. Maybe one or two jokes, which right. I cannot recall at this point. But So 20, 25 years later, does it, does it seem like fate then that you're... Well, 25 years later, I still don't have jokes. But it, does it seem like fate all these years later that you're now doing an online show or a TV show with Jay Okerson that's all crowd work? No. I never thought about it until you brought it up. What did you... I never thought about it. When you... So... What did you think about when you were when you were starting out? Did you have like goals and dreams for what no. would happen? You know, there are some comedians that say, "Well, I knew I would make it. Right. I had goals and I had it all figured out, but I had no clue." Well, some people, you know, they want to get on Saturday Night Live, or they want to get an HBO special, or they want to have a sitcom, or they want to be a movie star, or they just want to be a road dog and be a headliner. I just didn't want a nine-to-five job. That's it. <laughs> I just didn't want to go to an office. I was making the same amount of money doing comedy that I would make working in an office. Did you ever have an office job? No. What was, what was the last uh, non- I never had a job in my life. Really? Never. So that's, that's, that's working the hustle pretty good then. You gotta hustle. Yeah. How, how did you manage to do that when you were just starting out? Well, I was in college. Um, my dad had businesses. I would work for him. Mm -hmm. And um, in my free time, I would tell jokes. Okay. What was your dad's business? He had candy stores. A couple of stores. They had a candy store, video store, clothing store. And my mother says I opened daycares much later. What was your favorite of the, of the stores to, to help your dad out at? None, because he cursed me out everywhere I worked. <laughs> you want to work for your parents? It was awful. Well, for everybody else says, hey, come on in, do what yeah. you want. Yeah, thank you for coming. Me was like, motherfucker, didn't I tell you not to do that? You stupid. God damn it, boy, you're so goddamn stupid. Imagine that happening to you. Well, my parents both work for corporations, so I wouldn't even work for them. I would just be. Oh, you're a trust fund. Another. Thing. No. No, no. No, my dad worked for an insurance company, and my mom worked for re in real estate. So I wouldn't even be able to work for them. I'd just get a job at the company. I'll see. I mean, my parents boss me around if I go home. Well, parents have a hard job yeah. keep keeping your kids straight. Because your parents will, your kids will always uh, see you as an authority figure. Is that, is, that how your, uh, is that how your kids have looked at you? Yes. <laughs> that is how they should look at me. My daughter said, you know, sometimes before I talk to you, I get anxiety. And I said, you should. 
You should. Keep you straight. Okay. <laughs> I ain't no walk in the park. Yeah. So you, so what other, what are, so how, how in those, in those early years of comedy, how often were you, how often were you getting on stage? As often as I could. Like what was a typical week for you? Do you know how many spots you were doing or how many, how many different joints you were getting up at? Actually, no, when I first started to switch to the to white circuit, yeah. I performed all the time. Like just wherever, I, me, Judah Freelander, Ben Bailey, Godfrey, we would go up wherever there was a microphone or a stage just to stay on stage every night. No matter what night, we went up like at least four or five times a, a night. I mean, four or five times a week. So what was the turning point for you where you decided to jump from the black circuit to the white circuit? Money. How, how long had you been doing stand-up at that point? I mean, you want to audition for stuff. You want to yeah. get an agent. Right. You got to go through the white circuit. Even though the comedians that got big on the black circuit, they were doing the white circuit, too. Yeah. And then they knew that white people would invest in you if your own people followed you. So every big black comedian did the white circuit, and then they took their following from the black circuit to say, hey, I have followers, I can sell tickets. Yeah. It's all about selling tickets. How many, you, how many years in were you at that point? I don't even know. No? Like five, six, seven, I don't know. It's a lot of uh, trial and error in my career. Why so? I would say I didn't start making real money until 10 years in. But I was doing a white circuit mm -hmm. at three years in. Okay. But even then, I didn't start making real money at any of it until 10 years in. What happened at 10 years in? Was there a, a certain club that passed you or, or, or a headliner well, that took you on the Well, I started doing colleges. Okay. How did, how, did that, how did that go? How did you get in with NACA and all that? Well, the college booking agent, yeah. a comedian recommended me, and I went. And I know when you do NACAs, it's more about uh, talking to the audience, talking to the people who book the colleges, right. talking to uh, being uh, presentable, like taking pictures at your booth, uh, <laughs> being personable at your booth. It was more about that than your jokes. Than, than your on-stage presence. It was That's your true. ability to network and politic. It was uh, <laughs> a definite hustle. <laughs> how, how, how similar was uh, impressing the NACA kids to impressing the Jersey City neighborhood kids? Well, was it the same skill set? Well, they can all say no if you're not good at what you do, mm -hmm. except in Jersey City. Where I was growing up, a no meant you got punched in the face. <laughs> here, a no here meant you just didn't get a gig. Right. Did you ever consider uh, moving away from Jersey City? Well. Did you ever move away? No. Because I knew for a comedian, the best place to be is the East Coast. There's more comedy clubs in New York than LA. Right. So much more to do if you perform in New York than LA. You know? Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, at what point did you get uh, get into here at the Comedy Cellar? I was 28 when I got in at the 
comedy show. 28. So that's about nine years in, 10 years Yeah, old. so you remember that. You remember that? Why do you remember that specifically? Because I remember uh, talking to Estee. And I remember exactly at that age when she started to tell me that I can come in. So, 28. Because I remember my, my 28th birthday. And me and Godfrey went to a diner over here and he gave me $20. I was 28. 28. So I think actually I really got in here when I was 27. Okay. Were they still? They were still doing the uh, late. Yep. Late shows. 1:45 a.m. was my set. <laughs> I enjoy a stage with a microphone. It doesn't matter where it is, but the Comedy Cellar has the best audience. They have the best reputation, and if you're looking for a prime place to play and display your talent yeah. and work on new material, then there's nothing better than the Comedy Cellar. I mean, obviously, it meant something to you to be part of this family because Godfrey and you made a big deal out of it, out of getting past here. Who, who made a big deal out of it? You just said that Godfrey took you out to the diner and gave you 20 bucks and... Oh, I was 27, 28. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have any money. So That's it was like a big, it was a big deal. It wasn't because I was past here. It was because I didn't have any money. And he was like, hey, yeah. man. And he gave me 20 bucks. Yeah. He knew I was broke. We had breakfast. <laughs> but... This is a really good place to play. I love working here. It's always full. On a Monday, Tuesday, yeah. and the audiences come here to laugh and have a good time. There's no better place to play in New York City. And the comedians built a reputation. Working hard, coming in, doing their sets, showing up on time. The comedians built a reputation. The club kept a certain, uh, what's the word? I'm sorry. They kept a certain... Uh, Reputation? Prestige? Yeah, they kept the prestige of, of booking comedians that gave up their all. Yeah. Like, you, can't, you, can't, you can't build a reputation on shitty comedians. Right. You have to have good comedians that give 110% no matter what. And even here, comedians still give 110%. Even the new ones that get in, right. they give 110%. Because if you come and think that you can take nights off and be so-so, you just won't be here. Go do that somewhere else. Yeah. What is the, what's the craziest night on stage that you've been a part of here at The Cellar? Man, I think that it probably hasn't even happened yet. That's how I see it. Like I said, comedy yeah. is an improv. Right. Whatever happens that night, happens that night. Might not happen the next night, but it happened that night. Right. Um, Chappelle told me years ago, and I've always lived by this, if you stay on stage long enough, something funny is going to happen. <laughs> Is, is that why he would stay on stage for hours at a time? Yeah. But he did say, it doesn't matter what your material is, because you'll always come up with new material. Right. If you stay on stage, and we're not talking about the doing two, three hours of comedy. Right. We're just talking about staying on stage for long periods of time. Something <laughs> funny is going to happen. That's what his point was. Yeah. So that's, for That's how he writes new material. But you as a host can't stay up there forever. You have to keep the show moving. You know that's why I'm the host. Yeah. Because I never got off stage. <laughs> And they said, being that you like to stay on stage will make you the host. Okay. And now, 17 years later, you're still hosting. It's fine. Yeah. Because then I can work on the material. I don't have to do the same act over and over. I get to work on new things. And I don't always have to kill. It's a, it's a, 
it's a grace period to where it makes you think. Mm -hmm. You always have to keep thinking. Something different is going to happen on Monday. Something different is going to happen on Tuesday. I mean, yeah, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Every, every night is different. And you have to improv. You have to use your brain. One of the quickest comedians I've ever met is Big J Ogerson. The next quickest, Sherrod Small. Very quick people. Right. And when they're on stage, outside of their jokes, something funny always happens because they know how to use their train of thought to find the joke in every situation. That's what, I'm, that's, that, that's what impresses me. David Tell is the same. Even his little quips, right. his one-liners, those are jokes he comes up with on, on, on spot. Right. They, yeah, David Tell is always writing new material. So, so how did you, aside from just the physical rehab, how did you mentally and psychologically deal with being away from the stage for that so was, long after your accident? That was the hardest part. I wanted to be on stage so bad. Because, <clears throat> sorry. I realized without a stage, I was just a douchebag. <laughs> the shit that I could say when I walked off stage to people, right. they would think it was funny. But if you're in a restaurant and you start to say the same things, they'd be like, who the fuck is this guy talking right. shit? They don't see it as jokes. They see it as you being uh, obnoxious. <laughs> but here, I can walk off stage and say whatever, and they'll just laugh. Did the did the did your um, rehab people think that you were obnoxious? Well, they didn't know. They didn't know me. They didn't know what was the cause of the accident or if if I was that way before. Okay. After a couple of months, <laughs> and they realized that I was that way before. Uh -huh. Then it became great. So their first impression of you was was skewed because they didn't realize that you were a Always professional comedian? No, they knew I was a professional comedian. But, okay, when I was in rehabilitation, I couldn't tell the difference between a table filled with people with severe brain injuries and a table filled with professional comedians. I couldn't tell the difference. The conversation was the same. The exact same. What does that say about people with brain injuries? Or does that say more about people who are comedians? They find the humor, they don't have a filter. Right. Comedians are used to being able to take liberties on stage. Comedy takes a certain type of uh, egocentric uh, attitude. Okay. And people with severe brain injuries, they have that egocentric attitude. How much, how much of your rehab was, it, was private? individual rehab and how much of it was in a group setting? Mine was very private. Okay. Mine was not with other people. I was by myself all the time. I met one-on-one -on -one with physical therapists and therapists all the time. How my complete therapy, yeah. my complete uh, rehabilitation was uh, alone with the therapist and that was it. I didn't do group therapy at all. So how did you, how did you scratch that entertainment itch? That, that comedy itch? Oh, did you, did well, you have people come over? Did you did you uh, do crowd work with your friends over the phone? What, how did you? No, I just I mean I, I text people. Yeah. I text jokes out, and that was it. That's yeah. all I could do. When you're involved in a big case, and you can't walk, you yeah. gotta find other ways to be funny. My brain looks for the humor in every situation, and that's it. How how long how long after the accident did it take before people could start visiting you? And talking to you in person. Uh, I think when I when I got home in September, people started coming to see me. And even then, I couldn't do much. And they would come once in a blue moon. I didn't have a lot of visitors. It's fine. 
So they more tried to entertain you then? No, they, most people were just trying to see if I was in a vegetative state or not. Right. Everybody was concerned. They were just all concerned, which is okay. How did you feel about that? I didn't think about it. Yeah. I just had to deal with what was in front of me. My time away, the duration, I had to deal with that. That was more draining than uh, actually being away from the stage, not knowing where this was going to end up. And then when everything was settled, it was hard to not go on stage. Yeah. What did you, what did you tap into for motivation to keep you going this whole time? <laughs> How about that guy's hair and glasses? <laughs> <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> the, the fucking white version of Danger Mouse just walked in. He does have, he does have a, a nice... Uh, I think the technical term is a Jufro for what he has going hey, on there. Hey, hey, white guy with the afro, let me holler at you real quick. <laughs> what, did you, what, what did you tap into for motivation the whole time you were away before you could get back on stage in October? What was your... Um... Uh, I would actually just come here and sit and talk to comedians. Yeah. I mean, you've seen. I would just come. Yeah. You've seen me many times. Just come no, and yeah. Sit and talk to people. It, no, it was great to talk to you. And I missed you. Just see you be mellow. I wanted to go on stage, but yeah. I couldn't. Right. I had a, a certain plan to follow. Right. And I followed it. Uh, what's the plan now? I don't have one. So after all these years, you still don't... Don't well, have a plan? As I said, I think I've said it quite a few times. Yeah. It's all an improv. <laughs> Who knows I would even be here now? I improved it. Uh, things came, and my actions afterwards determined my stature in life right now. How I handled everything determined my stature in life right now. Like I said, I don't have a plan. You, you never studied improv, though. No. This is just all kind of... Natural. Living off on the fly. Living oh. on a prayer. I'm pretty sure I, I fucked that up. <laughs> I guess I wanted to wait. The waitress laughed after I said it. She was like, "That was awful." What is? I know. I know. <laughs> Living on a prayer. I know you mentioned. Getting, I'm doing it wrong. See, she laughed again. <laughs> Artie, I know you mentioned getting advice from Chappelle. What's the What's the best advice you've gotten from another comedian or person? The or, best advice? Yeah. That I got from a comedian? Yeah. Tracy Morgan told me. Don't come off that stage if your shirt dry. Meaning not to break a sweat. Break a sweat. Work. Yeah, you Work the stage. Work both sides of the stage. Work the entire theater. So if your shirt is dry, that means you're not working. Okay. Don't come off that stage if your shirt ain't wet. You better be soaking wet when you come off that stage. You better be soaking wet. You up there all cute, not even sweating, bombing. Up there bombing all dry, looking all good, bombing. <laughs> What's it like commiserating with Tracy now, having, having gone through all this? We're both busy. He's yeah. married, has a family. Yeah, he's trying to get his career back. Worked for, yeah. Because he had a TV deal before all this. Yeah, well, we're both working on hard on uh, what's going to happen. Yeah. What happens, happens. Yeah, you're going out to San Francisco? Yeah, with Big J. Okerson. Yeah. A sketch festival. Are you taking that show on the road to other places, too, or...? You know, you, you might have to ask Big J Ogerson and Christine that question because okay. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just go where they tell you when they tell well, you to go. I'm excited to do it. Yeah. They, they tell me to go to Dubai. I'll go to Dubai and do crowd work. Might get killed, but I'll go to Dubai. Where's the farthest you've gone to do crowd work at this point? 
It just started, so San Francisco will okay. be the furthest. Oh, the first time you've taken the, the show time, outside yeah. of New York. So, okay. I mean, they're going to have places booked and things to do and us to do. So, right. we did crowd work in October, November. Yeah, November yeah. we did crowd work. So, uh, two months later to be traveling is not, not bad. Yeah. And that's going to be on CISO, which is a new CISO, yep, NBC thing. Universal, CISO. And I always ask all of my guests this, what if a, if a new, if a fresh rookie comic comes up to you and asks you for advice, what's the first thing you tell? Stage time is gold. Stay yeah. on stage. Stage time is gold. Stay on stage. Well, Artie Fuqua, I'm so glad that you're back on stage. It's good to see you back. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. Fuck you going. I got you, nigga. I got you, babe. Motherfucking babe. Huh? 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 Those game? Those game, nigga? Those game? I'm joking. I'm joking. Thank you so much. I had a good time. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.